So hello and welcome to November's Journal Club podcast. My name is Aina McSidna, Registrar in Emergency Medicine. I'm joined today by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director and Consultant in Emergency Medicine at the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre and also by Dr. Elner Junkersdorf, Consultant in Emergency Medicine at the Alfred. Welcome to you both. This month we had four papers which were reviewed in our monthly journal club, which covered topics from headaches, angiography after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, early CT coronary angiography in suspected ACS, and a paper which describes a novel study on aerosol generation and COVID-19. So an action-packed month. To kick things off, we'll start off with the first paper. Paper one. A multi-centre cross-sectional observational study, opioid prescribing in patients presenting with headache. This study was published in Headache, the Journal of Head and Face Pain in October of this year by Pilat et al. So the objective of this study was to describe the patterns of opioid use in patients presenting to the emergency department with non-traumatic headache by severity and geography. The primary outcomes of interest were administration of opioids pre-hospital, opioid prescription in the ED, and opioid prescription at discharge. The population they looked at was adult patients over the age of 18 with non-traumatic headache, and patients were identified prospectively. In some instances, though, data was collected retrospectively. Patients were excluded if there was a history of trauma within 48 hours of presentation. Headache was not the main presenting complaint. If they were represented with the same symptoms, were inter-hospital transfers, or if medical records were missing. So this was a planned, multi-center, cross-sectional observation sub-study of the International Headache and Emergency Department's study. Patients were, participants were prospectively identified throughout one calendar month, which was March 2019, from 67 hospitals in Europe, Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. In terms of results, the overall um, 4,536 patients were enrolled in the head study. Uh, opioids were administered in 23.6% of patients in the ED and 10.2% of discharge patients. They identified high opioid use in Australia and New Zealand. Opioid use in ED was highest in these countries, Australia and New Zealand, whereas opioid prescription on discharge was highest in Singapore and Hong Kong. Independent predictors of ED opioid administration include the following, severe headache, pre-ED opioid use, long-term opioid use, ED opioid administration independently predicted opioid prescription at discharge. Theodore's conclusion then was that opioid prescription for non-traumatic headache in the ED and discharge varies internationally. Severe headache, pre-hospital opioid use, and long-term opioid use predicted ED opioid administration. So Peter, I'll start with yourself. This is an ambitious study of a common presentation to ED, and a lot of these findings have to be taken in the context of poor response rate for different countries. What did you interpret from the study? Uh, i, I got to say, I was sort of left scratching my head a little bit after reading the paper, uh, because there's such a big variation between the countries in terms of protocols and processes. So some ambulances don't use narcotics at all. And of course, the case mix is not defined. I mean, it's everything from someone who couldn't get into their GP with three months of headaches to someone with a thunderclap headache that could be a subarachnoid. You know, so I, I really wasn't even sure which group of patients we were talking about or comparing between countries. So that's a problem. And then there was, does anyone use pethidine anymore? I don't know. In either way, does anyone uh, even use narcotics for headaches? I mean, it's pretty unusual in my experience to use narcotics. Usually, you know, it's a migraine protocol or whatever, uh, which doesn't include narcotics. So I wasn't exactly sure which group of patients, when they were being given the narcotic and so forth. In terms of the importance of not using narcotics, I think the evidence would suggest that giving uh, someone who you think has got a subarachnoid or something, uh, some morphine is probably not a bad thing. But 
sending someone home on endone for six weeks is a very different matter and and that may result in ongoing addiction problems and various other problems so it is such a scattergun of issues that i found it difficult to interpret what do you think Eleanor? no i agree and i i think what i was left wondering was who were those patients on discharge that received a prescription for endone essentially who who are these patients what was their ultimate diagnosis and i couldn't really take that away from this paper but i think my understanding of what it was trying to achieve was to compare our rates of opioid use to other countries in the context of what is going on at a high level and that you'd be very well aware of Peter in the context of trying to establish a a formal national opioid stewardship program and gleaning some information that we can use to inform practices to help manage the opioid prescription crisis that you could say is a problem in the US, endemic, and is a problem in Australia as well. And the conversation that came out of our journal club was very much that, oh, no, we never prescribe opioids for headaches. So who is? That Some of us must be. There must be some reason. And um, it would have been helpful to understand the clinician's rationale for prescribing opioids because there must have been a reason. Well, as I said, I, I wonder, you know, some of these patients may have been suspected subarachnoids and yes. serious injuries, um, yes. in which case I have no problem with someone prescribing um, no. something for those. If it was a chronic headache or, you know, what you thought was a tension headache or something and, and you're giving them endone, then that's just silly. So... I, I, as I say, I would like to have a little bit more information before trying to interpret what all this means. The other thing I think that's interesting in Australia is our pre-hospital group, I think, uses quite a lot of narcotics. And I wonder whether that's been driven by the sort of KPI of, you know, basically the paramedics are being judged by whether they reduce pain before they arrive at hospital. And so the KPI approach to pain drives some aberrant behaviour. And that also happens in the ED where the nurse says, the person's got a pain score of 11 out of 10, uh, you know, better give them some endone. So that sort of approach, I think, is is problematic. Yeah, and I think like the, the paper did describe the use of pre-hospital narcotics was linked with a continuing use of the narcotics in that patient cohort to receive them, and then patients who received them were more likely to be discharged. And those, I suppose, reflect as well the, uh, the high prevalence of narcotics and opiates in the community with 10% of patients presented has self-administered the opiates themselves. So, yeah, it's, a, it's something in the wider socioeconomic context that is, is a huge problem, particularly in the US, I suppose. Okay, uh, we move on to the second paper. Paper two. The second paper we had was angiography after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. This paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August of this year by Stefan Desch et al. The clinical question was, an adult over 30 years of age suffering out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST elevation under ECG does routine immediate coronary angiography compared to a delayed or selective approach to coronary angiography improved 30-day all-course mortality. Population here was all adult patients over 30 years of age with ROSC after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest a possible cardiac origin without ST segment elevation. The patients could have had both shockable and non-shockable rhythms during their arrest. The intervention, immediate coronary angiography, 
and controlled immediate intensive care management, followed by selective angiography. The outcome, uh, the primary, all-cause mortality at 30 days, and the secondary outcomes, myocardial infarction at 30 days, severe neurological deficit, combination of death from any cause, or severe neurological deficit at 30 days, and ICU length of stay. So this was an in, uh, international investigator-initiated randomized multi-center open-label trial. And the results were that at 30 days risk of death from any cause, there is no significant difference between immediate angiography versus delayed selective angiography, 54 versus 46%. And there's no significant difference between any of the secondary outcomes. And the author's conclusion was that in resuscitated patients with a possible cardiac cause of a hospital cardiac arrest without ST elevation or left bone branch block, an immediate coronary angiography strategy did not reduce 30-day risk of death from any cause compared to a delayed or selective coronary angiography strategy. And so, this, the, the core trial was the pretext of this, where they found in those with an initial shock of a rhythm without ST elevation and ECG, that immediate coronary angiography did not improve 90-day mortality. This study went one step further, possibly and more effective of the patient cohort that we see, the, the undifferentiated cardiac arrests. Um, Anna, what was your impression of this paper? Yeah, uh, I think that's a good summary, Anna. My takeaway from this study is that well, it will not change my practice. Um, it doesn't tell us anything new compared to COACT. I thought it was interesting that the same percentage of patients who went to immediate angiography as opposed to delayed angiography had lesions stented, suspicious lesions stented, 37% and 43% comparatively, but at 90 days, their mortality was the same. I think what we talked about in Journal Club was that cath lab is a terrible place to resuscitate a person. It's also not a great place to investigate for other causes of cardiac arrest. And so I think it supports our practice of immediate angiography for patients with an ST, clear ST elevation MI. There was some discussion about the fact that there's not a great description of what hemodynamic instability might mean, essentially how unstable were some of the patients. So in the context of patients who are significantly unstable or who you've managed to exclude an alternative cause in that early stage, they may still require an early PCI. So it is still very much a conversation with your cardiologist on site, I think. But um, what did you think, Peter? I listened to the uh, author of this paper uh, in National Journal Club of Germany. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it's an excellent study. I mean, they did a fantastic job. They're a bit unfortunate that COAC actually happened whilst they were doing the study or preparing for the study. So they've sort of came second, really. But... Uh, name, uh, though. Tomahawk. Excellent oh, name. Great name. Oh, and they picked a great <laughs> name, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing is that 30 days, there was no difference. But it was only 550 patients. There's not a lot of patients. So certainly no ability to detect, um, you know, small subgroups or, uh, you know, groups of interest. But, you know, it does confirm that you don't want to spend a lot of time in the cath lab unless you have to. And the majority of these patients didn't have a lesion which was going to need immediate resolution. So basically you're exposing patients to risk for no benefit. That's what that's what I see in it. So, yeah, I, I think, and you know, there may be a small group of patients that benefit from immediate uh, angio even in the um, non-semis. The, this group didn't find them, and I think for you know routine non-research patients, you shouldn't send them to the cath lab if they have an on-stemming. <laughs> and in terms of methodology, Peter, what did you make of the like um, 
the follow-up period? Do you think it was a bit too short? 30 days. I think 30 days is good. Did you have a different number in mind? If, if you were to broaden it out a bit, you might show something more clinically significant like LV function, dysfunction in patients who, who have delayed applications. Um, yeah, so they maybe, talked about that. The problem, the problem is that anything other than death gets a bit rubbery and you're doing it across multiple sites, uh, all that sort of gear. Yes, I mean, obviously LV function at 30 days or something might might have put, you know, we've looked at using, you know, peak troponins, uh, MRIs, all sorts of things. All those things become a lot more complicated and so you get lost to follow up and all sorts of things. So it, it adds a degree of complexity. I mean, at the end of the day, this is, you know, the most important clinical, you know, outcome. Yeah, I like your description there of anything other than death being a bit of a rubbery endpoint. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard enough; you can't you can't argue with it. <laughs> okay, great. So it's not going to really change our practice, but it does going forward. It does force us to think carefully about what what is offered by getting early angiogram, and uh, the cat lab isn't a destination for resuscitation, like you said, Eleanor. If we push for immediate cat lab, we could be delaying identification of other potential serious causes like PE aortic dissection. Okay, great. Um, so we'll just move on to our third paper. Paper three. Early CT coronary angiography in patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome, a randomized control trial. This was published in the BMJ in September this year by Gray et al. So the objectives of this study was to establish if the use of early CT coronary angiography improves one-year clinical outcomes in patients presenting to the emergency department with acute chest pain and at immediate risk of acute coronary syndrome and subsequent clinical events. This was a randomized controlled trial that was conducted in 37 hospitals in the UK. In terms of participants, they included adults with suspected or provisional diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome and one or more previous coronary heart disease raised levels of cardiac troponin or abnormal ECG. And the interventions were early CT angiography and standard of care compared to control of standard of care only. The outcome measures, the primary endpoint was all-cause death or subsequent type 1 or 4B myocardial infarction of one year, with the secondary endpoints included cause of death due to coronary heart disease or cardiovascular death, as well as subsequent myocardial infarction. The results, in terms of the primary endpoint, uh, occurred in 51 or 5.8% of participants, randomised to CTCA, and 53 or 6.1% participants who received standard of care only. There was no overall differences in coronary revascularization, use of drug treatment for acute coronary syndrome, or subsequent preventative treatments between the two groups. So early CT coronary angiography was associated with a slight longer time in hospital from a median hospital stay of 2 to 2.2 days. So in conclusion, in intermediate risk patients with acute chest pain and suspected ACS, early CTCA did not alter overall coronary therapeutic interventions or one-year clinical outcomes, but reduced rates of invasive angiography while modestly increasing length of stay. So, Peter, there are a few issues uh, raised during the regarding this paper. Standard of care wasn't defined. The study power and sample size was recalculated midway throughout the study, um, and they redefined the secondary outcomes during the trial. And there's, so there's a few questions raised. What was your impression? I thought they did a pretty good job. A good research group, Alistair Gray up in Scotland there. But one of the things that's a little bit interesting is the the group they chose, the intermediate risk, and 50 to 75% had coronary disease. So this isn't your typical in-out short-stay patient. These are patients who actually have a fair chance of having something wrong. And if you look at it, they had 37 hospitals and only 1,700 patients over four years. So 
It's actually a fairly select bunch of patients. So that's that's the first thing. And so you would expect the CTCA to show something in a lot of cases. And what I'm surprised about is the low numbers of their outcomes. So death plus AMI was like 51 patients, I think. So the the outcome was not that common. So, yeah, I think they selected out the more severe end of what we see in our short stay unit and there weren't a lot of events and it didn't seem to make a lot of difference. They would have needed a lot more patients to show, you know, with that number of events, they would have needed a lot more patients to show a difference. What they did show was there was a decrease in coronary angios done, which I think was interesting. And there was more satisfaction from the patient and the doctor, which is not to be underestimated because an unsatisfied patient sort of buzzes around and causes problems. If you sort of knock them on the head and say, you've got no coronary disease, go and see your GP in a month or something, then that's sort of satisfying, uh, both for the doctor and the patient. Say, well, we've got no idea, but uh, go home and we'll sort it out at some point. Then that sort of creates anxiety and and probably uh, as, as evidenced by the number of angios, more tests. I mean, it's going to make no difference to ultimate outcome, uh, as demonstrated by this. Uh, I think that's quite conclusive, but it might just increase the efficiency of the process. That was my take on this. Yeah. And this isn't an emergency medicine-specific study, but it has relevance as opposed to a presentation that's very common ED. And like Peter alluded to there, this immediate risk group, this is a patient cohort that we're going to get cardiology involved early on. Like... But it does raise questions about the resource use in the Bowen Hospital. What did you make of that? I agree. I actually had exactly this patient on Saturday. Very well-educated patient, had had a previous CTCA with a lesion that had been stented and then had presented to the hospital with similar chest pain. And he said to me, I am not convinced by your standard tests of um, no change to my ECG and negative troponin because last time it was all fine and I would like my CTCA. And I was able to say, well, would you like to discuss this paper that I have just <laughs> read? That show, And he was very interested. So it was, but I think that, that, again, then what stood out to me in the paper was that diagnostic certainty that we all love both as patients and as clinicians but again, reassuringly, to know that at a year, it doesn't make much difference in this small subgroup of patients, as you said, Peter, may be helpful in some cases. It certainly was helpful for me on Saturday. But at, And I referred the patient back to their regular cardiologist who was happy with that as a plan. So that was the double reassurance of this patient will be closely followed by their own cardiologist. I would say that I have never ordered a CTCA in a patient in the emergency department who presented with chest pain. Peter, have you ordered a CTCA? I have, but it's not, it's not routine. I mean, certainly in the, in the private system, I think it's pretty routine. In the public system, it's not that common. No. So it would be interesting to know, is there a subgroup of patients, as you say, in whom if we were to order the CTCA ourselves in the emergency department, that it would be of value? But I don't know what that, I don't know what that patient group is. I mean, I think if they've got a clear CTCA and they're low risk or, you know, you're not particularly worried about them, uh, then it, it means there's no urgency about getting an angio or doing anything else. I think that's the point. And, and in the pri- I mean, the problem in the public system is getting access, whereas in the private system, that can sort of knock it on the head, reassure everyone and move on. Yes. 
I think we talked about numbers of CTCAs based on this study needed to be done to in, avoid one invasive angiography being about 15 and to do 15 CT, 14 to 15, 14 to 15 CTCAs when certainly our public access to radiology is under a bit of pressure at the moment. It's, it's a lot of work. So I don't know. Balance is helpful. What did you make of the, um, the use of the gray score in terms of risk stratification? Like I know that there in the low risk gray score, there was a high amount of, um, or significant amount of occlusive disease. I know we're flooded with Timmy Grace and heart scores. Is there any, anything you can take on that? I guess I'm a bit lazy. I don't necessarily use the scores. I use the elements of the scores. But yeah, I mean, many hospitals have a sort of automated approach to this. We don't, but maybe we should. We'll move on to our last paper. Paper four. The effect of respiratory activity, non-invasive respiratory support and face masks on aerosol generation and its relevance to COVID-19. This was published in Anesthesia in September. The, aim, the authors aim to measure the size, total number and volume of all human aerosols exhaled during respiratory activities and therapies. The hypothesis they have was uh, total emissions will be increased by exertion respiratory activity and decreased by clinically uh, indicated therapies. In terms of population, the study protocol included 10 healthy non-smoking healthcare workers. In terms of methodology, the researchers built a new chamber providing extremely clean air in which 10 healthy volunteers sat. They breathed into a large cone and the researchers collected the particles that were breathed out and used a specialised machine called an optical particle counter to measure the number and size of particles. The volunteers performed respiratory activities, including breathing, talking, shouting, coughing, and exercising, designed to mimic respiratory activity of patients with respiratory infections such as COVID-19. The volunteers then repeated those experiments while receiving oxygen therapies commonly used in hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19, first with delivery of oxygen high flow into the nose, so high flow nasal oxygen, and then oxygen delivered under pressure through the high flow face mask, i.e. non-invasive ventilation. In terms of results, the three respiratory therapies uh, showed, showed slight increase in total particle counts at higher flows and pressures relative to quiet breathing benchmark. Particle counts reduced when high flow nasal oxygen is used during respiratory activities, significantly during coughing, uh, where emissions were halved. And during exercise, the three respiratory therapies reduced particle counts by 30 to 60%, the only significant during non-invasive, non-invasive ventilation. The effect of surgical face masks was varied throughout activity, generally, generally decreasing total emissions with apparent larger reductions observed in activities with higher particle counts. The author's conclusions then were exertion and respiratory activities themselves are the primary modes of aerosol generation and represent a greater transmission risk than is widely recognized currently. Therefore, increased measures targeting physiologically generated aerosols could protect patients, healthcare workers, and public from respiratory pathogens, including SARS-CoV-2. Um, so I learned from this paper, did you make any changes to current practices in the emergency department? Not current practices, no. I think that we have recognised that aerosol generating behaviours are a risk for a long period of time and certainly it's written into our guidelines as such, coughing, shouting, exercising, etc. I think what is helpful to note or to reflect on is that certainly March, April last year, when in that first initial surge, there was some reluctance, some concern about using NIV, about using um, high-flow nasal oxygen, although it was quickly become quickly became standard of care after that. And it was very much must be approved by a consultant at the time and such things. And people's memories are long. And people do 
still identify and and I mean it even this study does identify those are aerosol generating procedures but at the same time the conclusion that early institution of NIV or early institution of high flow nasal oxygen decreasing that work of breathing decreasing that coughing kind of behavior is actually helpful and preventative of aerosol generating events in itself and so I, I think this is helpful I think it is helpful I you know I have to say that I don't have a great understanding of that methodology in terms of the description of the machine and the cone and et cetera. But it is helpful for medical staff to be reassured by the fact that while the use of NIV and the use of high-flow nasal oxygen does slightly increase aerosol generation, it is far preferable or far less than the behaviour of work of breathing, coughing, shouting, those kinds of behaviours. So I I thought this was helpful and I I thought this was um, a positive study. What did you think, Peter? Yeah, it got a bit of play on Twitter, which was good. But um, no, I, I think it was a very helpful study. Uh, and I think you're underplayed. If you go, if you wind back 18 months, you know, during the SARS epidemic, we said you were not allowed to use NIV. Mm. And that continued into the start of this pandemic, as in, you know, March, April, May. We said you could not use NIV. Yes, I remember. And even high flow nasal. I was on the evidence committee uh, task force for this Australia, and that was written in. Mm. And now we've done a 180 degree turn, and we've said, actually, it's probably better. <laughs> Which is, it just shows you uh, you need to have an open mind. Now there are some methodological, you know, like it makes sense to me. And this was confirmed during the last uh, last year, quite a number of healthcare workers actually got COVID and there was an outbreak on a couple of wards, one at the, the Royal Melbourne and a couple of other places. And they were mostly old people who were, you know, behaviourally challenged. And, and they were yelling, getting close to people, uncontrolled environment. And also they were put in wards where there was no ventilation. And so the staff in those wards were exposed to huge loads of virus, and yet they, they weren't on NIV or anything. Uh, they were just exposed to huge loads of virus. And so I think our thinking has, as I say, gone gone around 180 degrees. And and this paper is is sort of helpful, I guess, in in getting our minds around that. But there's a couple of reservations, I guess, in the methodology. They weren't sick patients, so they may behave differently. And although these were particles, we don't know whether a part one particle is the same as another. So, i.e., a virus might not be infected, even though it's a particle. And so, infectivity might not equal part particle load. Although logically, you'd think they correlated. But I'm just saying this doesn't demonstrate infectivity. It demonstrates particle load, which I think you need to take into account. But certainly in terms of my practice, I think it, it uh, reassures me that I can put someone on NIV, I can put them on high flow, and I can feel safer in doing that. And I feel safer in doing that when I've got someone who's coughing and spluttering and yelling and whatever else, whack a mask on and put a viral filter in the, in the tubing and you'll be a lot better off. Yeah, I, I suppose like early on in the pandemic way, we were classifying these high-flow and NIV as aerosol-generating procedures. Like you felt in some way that the patients who might have benefited from them early on were getting having delayed or restricted access to these beneficial therapies. 
So I'm glad that this kind of paper shines a light on that uh, and I suppose that we've done a 180 on it. As well as that, uh, like reading very down there, it does definitely fill the staff in the emergency department with a lot of confidence when we're walking around with our N95s now that were, especially with the Delta being far more brilliant as it is, uh, that we're a lot safer. But yeah, any, any, any other thoughts on that paper? Well, it, it basically confirms the approach we're now taking, which I think is useful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Uh, guys, thanks very much for joining me today. And that concludes our Journal Club podcast for this month. And uh, we'll talk to you next month. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Well done, Ina.